Welcome to Traveling Culturati, where we explore cultures and share travel news, travel tips, destinations, and travel chats. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Well, hey there, fellow Culturati. Javon Harley here, your host and travel pro for Traveling Culturati. Joining me today is Dr. Gina Page, co-founder and president of African Ancestry with the importance of knowing your ancestry, what sets them apart from the other ancestry DNA testing and what it entails. We'll also have Javon's Travel Minute and the Culture Report chatting with a nice young lady, a professional international women's basketball player, and she shares her story. But right now, I've got a little travel news. Have you seen Woman King? I have, and I'm going to see it again. It's that good, yes. But I want to talk about where it was filmed. The cast and crew of The Woman King arrived in Cape Town in November of 2021 to begin filming. The currently playing film starring Viola Davis portrays the story of the female Agoji warriors who defended the Dahomey Kingdom in West Africa from the 17th to the 19th century. The film's location was carefully chosen to capture the then environs of Benin, West Africa, the actual country and homeland of the Dahomey. The decision to film in South Africa proved to be equally impressive as the imposing stars. The Woman King cinematographer Polly Morgan sat down with On Location in an interview with the details of the locations in South Africa. You know that's one of my favorite destinations. The director, Gina Prince Blythewood, wanted to show Africa as a rich, lush continent with gorgeous color and moody light from sunrises to sunsets. That's because that's when they had to film. And in some cases, they had to get up at one in the morning to film a sunset to get set up and all. The director said she wanted to showcase the rich cultural past and provide visuals that would give these women and the lovely setting in which they resided credit. In addition to the amazing work of designer Akin McKenzie, they wanted to create a historical epic that was both beautiful and authentic rather than just a glitzy commercial film. A lot of places were shot in KwaZulu-Natal's northern region, because it's the lush vegetation and palm trees that aren't seen in the southern region. Namely, for the battle's opening scene at the Mahi village, that scene was filmed in the Bonamazi Game Reserve. They scouted Cape Town and the nearby areas for the remaining locations, finding the locations for the palace of King Gezo, played by John Boyega, was one of their top priorities. They said they chose Par Devle, an abandoned munitions factory on the outskirts of the city with a lot of open space. The palace was constructed with the proper orientation to the path of the sun for a shoot in the summer month in South Africa. Weisenhof Nature Reserve was selected as the site of the Ojo fight because it featured an ideal bank of trees that the Agoji could hide in as they readied for their dawn attack. They originally planned to film a chunk of the movie in West Africa, but logistically, it proved to be quite difficult. However, after the primary production was finished, they did send a smaller splinter unit to Ghana. Other shooting locations were Palmiette Beach, which is close to Cape Town, 
and that served as their beach scenes for when the two flee over the wall at Ouida. Now, if you haven't seen the movie, you don't know what I'm talking about, but I'm sure it's on your list. And if you've seen the movie, you know the scene I'm talking about. The estuary at that location served as a river. They constructed the Castle of Good Hope in Cape Town to serve as Port Ouida. The Agoji and Oyo engage in combat in the Weisenhof Nature Reserve. Places to visit in KwaZulu-Natal in Cape Town? There are so many indoor and outdoor activities to enjoy in Cape Town, which is a breathtakingly lovely city. It reminds me a lot of San Francisco. So some of the things you can do, you can climb Lion's Head, take the cable car to the summit of Table Mountain, visit lovely Kirstenbosch Botanical Gardens, take a ferry to Robben Island and visit the Nelson Mandela jail cell where he spent the majority of his life. You can visit Boulder's Beach to see the penguins and a must do is to visit the wineries to sample some wonderful South African wines. In KwaZulu-Natal, take advantage of the Indian Ocean where the waters are much warmer. You can visit the Valley of a Thousand Hills for breathtaking views and Zululand, which is the old set of the film Shaka Zulu and is now an attraction. Who knows? Maybe some of these scenes or sets that were built and constructed for the filming of Woman King will also become sites. Let's wait and see what happens there. We might have some new attractions next year that we can visit. <laughs> now, after many delays and extensions, the real ID deadline is now May 3rd, 2023. You may want to head to your local DMV as soon as possible. Why? Because you won't be permitted to fly domestically if you don't have a real ID, a current passport, or another acceptable form of identification by then. The real ID deadline is now officially less than a year away after many extensions. First, the delays were due to states' abilities to comply, and then it was the pandemic. All U.S. passengers 18 years of age or older will be required to show their driver's license that the Transportation Security Administration deems to be real ID compliant. Children traveling domestically with an adult do not need to show identification. Other permissible forms of identification include a current passport, passport card, permanent resident card, or DHS Trusted Traveler Program card like the Global Entry or Nexus. The District of Columbia, all 50 states, and four out of the five U.S. territories are currently issuing licenses and identification cards that comply with real ID. The only territory that isn't yet issued is American Samoa, so it would be possible for the vast majority of Americans to acquire one. In response to the 9-11 Commission's recommendations following the September 11, 2001 attacks, the Real ID Act was passed in 2005, creating a more modern type of driver's license or identification card that satisfies certain basic security standards. The new requirements are meant to make identification cards more secure and harder to fake. TSA claims that compliant cards are often identified by a star, either a black or gold, in the card's upper corner. Driver's license and identification cards are issued by each state separately, and each state has its own real ID laws. Because of this, each state has slightly different criteria, but often the only distinction between applying for and receiving a license that complies with real ID and one that doesn't is the supporting documentation required. A quick online search for your state and real ID should put you on the right track. 
to finding all the required information your state has as a comparable explainer. Sir Richard Branson sat down with Condé Nast Traveler talking about what's next in travel and how he changed the travel industry. On how the airline industry has changed since he entered the tourism industry, Branson says, Looking back 38 years, the experience was abhorrent. I mean, there wasn't any entertainment and the cabin crew never cracked a smile. You were lucky if you had cold chicken dropped in your lap. Everyone was puffing on a cigarette (laughs) and the seats didn't even slightly recline. After Virgin Atlantic entered the market and provided a service that was well-received, other airlines began to imitate it. The public today wants to get away from the guilt associated with using aircraft, and they are attempting to figure out how to make flying environmentally beneficial. On entering the cruise industry with Virgin Voyages, wanting to improve the cruising experience as he did with the airline industry and why it was difficult, Branson recounted, They started with making a list of everything a cruise line should be. They ultimately decided to rent out Abramovich's yacht to more individuals. Let's build the world's most entertaining yacht. Sadly, we do not permit children, but there is no denying that Virgin has set itself apart in this regard. We now have the room to build jogging tracks, basketball courts, amazing fitness centers, amazing massage rooms, and all the other things that grown-ups desire. We also have the friendliest crew you could imagine on board from 64 different countries. And on space travel, Branson says, there's a sizable wait list of people who wish to travel to space. We will be able to deliver them there if we can continue to lower the environmental cost of doing so. In his opinion, a spacecraft will have reached Mars in 20 years and may be working on a moon project. Some more good news for Virgin Atlantic. They're set to join Sky Team. In early 23, Virgin Atlantic will join Sky Team's Team Alliance and will do so as the only airline from the United Kingdom. It offers Virgin Atlantic customers a unified customer experience at more than 1,000 locations worldwide. And it also brings Virgin Atlantic to the Sky Team Alliance. So that means you'll have an expanded system and interline agreements in place with a broad range of airlines. U.S. claims the top seven international airport mega hubs for 2022. Now that's saying a lot because we had really dropped down in the rankings and lists for airports around the world. The most interconnected international airports in the world have been identified by the recent analysis from OAG a data platform for the travel industry. The United States grabbed the top seven slots for the most linked international airports, according to the Mega Hub's 2022 report. As the world emerges from the pandemic, the airport business has been shaken. And when compared to 2019's Mega Hubs, U.S. airports have surpassed numerous airports from across the globe. Now, why has America taken control of the rankings? Nearly every aspect of society has been altered by COVID. And this is also true of flying. Every nation recovered from the pandemic in its own time and manner. As a result, compared to the pre-pandemic year of 2019, this year's ranks are noticeably different. Due to the robust domestic connectivity, the United States topped the list this year. The United States has experienced a solid year 
for domestic travel and has a disproportionately large number of airports compared to most other nations. While other nations discuss their reopening plans, the United States experienced a significant tourism resurgence despite the fact that many international destinations were closed for certain periods of the year. What were the top 10 international airports of the best connectivity? The United States claimed nine of those 10 international airports with the best connectivity for 2022. Chicago O'Hare came in number one, where in 2019 they ranked three. Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport moved up from 19 to the second spot. Hartsfield-Jackson Atlanta International Airport moved up to number three from their previous eight spot. Seattle-Tacoma International Airport at number four improved their ranking from 37. And from 80 all the way to number five is Denver International Airport. Los Angeles International Airport from 13 to number six. John F. Kennedy from number 18 to number seven. And the only one that's not a U.S. carrier is Mexico City International Airport, moving from 15 to number eight spot. And the last two in the top 10, George Bush International Airport, number nine, moving from 21, and Miami International Airport from 20 to 10. Those are significant moves. And let's see how they continue to do that for the years to come. Well, that's all I've got for travel news. And when I come back, we'll have Javon's Travel Minute and Dr. Gina Page, co-founder and president of African Ancestry. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well-informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Welcome back to the Traveling Culturati. I'm your host and travel pro, Javon Harley. Make sure you check out the website, TravelingCulturati.com. And while you're there, follow us on social media and join that travel club. We go some fantastic places and we want to make sure that you're going to join us on some of these wonderful adventures and journeys. And now, Javon's Travel Minute. I have a traveler's checklist I give to my group travelers. On this list is a home checklist to prepare your home for while you're away. This allows you to keep your home safe and secure from not only potential burglary, but also conditions that otherwise need tending to during your absence. Place a mail stop with the post office. If you live in a condo, your management office may have a service for its residents. I prefer this one over the mail stop with the post office. It means my mail is immediately available to me when I return home. I've noticed a delay when the mail stop period is over with the post office, so it happens more quickly. Alternatively, if you live in a house, you can ask a trusted neighbor or friend. Delay package deliveries. Stop ordering items well in advance so the deliveries don't arrive while you're away. Or you can have them sent to the holding center of that delivery service. For example, you can have it delivered to a P.O. box or to a UPS store, or you can have it delivered to a locker at Amazon. You just want to make sure they're not delivered to your home while you're away. In today's environment, packages left on doorsteps or porches are already at risk of porch pirates. So multiple packages will be a clear flag that no one is home. 
A trusted neighbor is another go-to source to ask to pick up packages if they are left. Also, notify your close family members and friends so they won't send you anything, especially if it's your birthday or anniversary. You're going to arrange for pet care. You're going to ask someone to water the plants. Or better yet, you can get one of those self-watering globes that you stick down into the soil and it waters it slowly. You want to set up timers, lighting schedule, TV schedule, stereo, and your cars. This too is a deterrent for anyone who may think that you're not home. Designate an emergency contact person and provide them with all of your details. And you want to empty your fridge of perishables. Eliminate possible fire hazards by unplugging electronics. And set your thermostat, depending on the time of the year, anywhere from 68 to 72. Lock all doors and windows, and this may sound like a no-brainer, but sometimes we're so preoccupied with the big things, the obvious things get overlooked. It's also a good idea to lock entrances you don't use regularly so that you don't forget about them. This is Javon, and that was your Travel Minute. What better way to celebrate a culture than to talk about our ancestry? I have the honor and pleasure to speak with Dr. Gina Page, co-founder and president of African Ancestry. She's also a pioneer, entrepreneur, and a Black identity influencer. Well, hello, Dr. Page, and welcome to Traveling Culturati. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Now, because I have had DNA done, but not with African Ancestry, and that's certainly on my list to do. And we're going to talk about why it's so important to have it done specifically with African ancestry as a African-American, as a Black person. So is African ancestry 100% Black-owned? Yes, we are. We are 100% Black-owned, Black-founded, Black-funded. Our entire staff is Black. We use Black vendors and suppliers as much as we possibly can. So yes. And I think sometimes people may not really understand the significance of that and the importance of that when you're doing something specifically for Black people and Black culture. So can you talk about that a little bit, why that's so important? Of course, it's extremely important for us. One, we are our customers. So in order for us to truly and thoroughly understand our customers, it works best when we reflect them. And so we have that throughout our company. But we have a commitment to the community at large, to the culture at large, and that means supporting other Black-owned businesses. That means employing Black people, providing jobs for Black people. And it means recycling the Black dollar within the Black community to help strengthen the economics of the Black community. So when a person spends money with us, we then in turn spend it with other Black-owned businesses, which in turn allows them to spend it with other Black-owned businesses. And the cycle continues. Yeah, we have to really get back to those days when the dollar stayed in the Black community for more cycles than it certainly does today, where today it's very little and it leaves almost immediately. And that's so important to maintaining and building wealth that we have that repeated circulation of the Black dollar. And we used to have it before integration. And we really need to get back to it as much as we possibly can. I agree a thousand percent. The other thing I would add or just flush out a little bit about why it's so important for us to be a Black-owned company when we're talking about tracing the ancestry of people of the African diaspora 
it adds a level of respect and integrity to the work that we do, as well as it honors the ancestors because we are doing the work of the people who came before us on behalf of the people who came (laughs) before our customers. And so those are two other reasons why it's very important that this particular work be done by Black people. Absolutely. So let's talk about African ancestry, what it is and how you got started. African ancestry as a company is focused on helping to transform the way that we as Black people view ourselves and the way we view Africa. And we've chosen to do that by reconnecting people of African descent to the continent of Africa to specific present-day countries and ethnic groups through DNA. So we offer DNA testing that can place ancestry in a specific African country and ethnic group. And our company started because my business partner, Dr. Rick Kittles, who is a renowned geneticist, wanted to know where he was from. Quite honestly, that's how the whole thing started. He began compiling African lineages, in other words, African DNA from Africans on the continent, and looking for his own matches. He was part of the team at Howard University that was called upon to research the New York African burial ground in the 90s. And his job was to identify the ancestry of the bones. It was a cemetery of enslaved Africans that was unearthed when they were excavating land for a federal building. And so when the community found out that he was able to do that, he got inundated with requests to do it for them. And of course, as a genetics researcher, that wasn't an area of business that he could manage. And so we collaborated and partnered so that I could commercialize the research. So that's how we got here. And fascinating it is because I want to talk about what that difference is, because there is a difference between African ancestry and tracing your DNA versus other ancestry testing. How does that differ? Well, ancestry tracing can be used to answer several different questions. They can be used to answer the question, who am I related to? What are my health traits? Or where in the world am I from? Or how much of different ancestries do I have, you know, that make up who I am? All other companies in the industry, the big dogs that you see on television and hear on the radio, et cetera, they do something called admixture testing. And so what they do is they look at your entire genetic family tree. They look at all of the branches of your family tree that have gotten mixed together genetically, and then they tease out you're some percentage from Europe, some percentage from Africa, some percentage from the Americas, whatever you know the percentages are. And then within each larger group, they then say some percentage of this is Italian or Scottish or from this region we'll call Nigeria or this region we'll call Ivory Coast and Ghana. And they, they get those sub regions. And what they're able to do is give you a general look at your ancestry, but it's based on everybody who comes from your mother and everybody who comes from your father. We look at single lineages or single branches of the family tree. So our test is a single lineage test. It looks at mother to mother to mother to mother. 
goes back 2000 years and tells you where that ancestor was prior to the transatlantic slave trade. We also go back father to father to father to father and tell you the same thing. It's not always African because none of us is 100% African. So sometimes that one branch of the tree goes back to the Middle East, or sometimes it goes back to Europe, or sometimes it's an indigenous American ancestry. But the majority of the time it's African. And then that's when we're able to say, you're not just from this region, but you share ancestry like Chadwick Boseman, for example, with the Limba people living in Sierra Leone today. And so that's how we're different fundamentally. If you want to know health traits, if you want to find fifth and sixth cousins, African ancestry does not do that. But if you want to know where specifically your ancestor was, if you want to be able to explore the traditions and the values and the beliefs and the cultural practices, then African ancestry can give you the tools to do that. And I think that's what's so important for African-Americans, or even if you're in Brazil or the Caribbean, being able to trace back your specific roots, because I think that's something I can speak for myself, that oftentimes when you're in a group or a company of other people, and they're talking about their heritage to the sense that they can go back for so many generations, and you stop, and you just can't go back any further and you don't have that much knowledge about your ancestry. We stop at Virginia or Alabama or Mississippi or Jamaica or Haiti, right? We can't say where in Africa, we couldn't until African ancestry say where specifically in Africa. I didn't mean to cut you off, but that happens in the workplace. It Mm -hmm. happens in school when our schools have Ancestry Day or International Day. Our kids get left out of that conversation. You've empowered yourself to be able to participate fully in whatever the experience is, if it's team building at work or a school project. Right. And when I was speaking of it, I was speaking of a personal experience, you know, before I started my own company and I was in this corporate environment in that you were constantly in these conversations where Europeans were able to say specifically and and I was not. And so you just kind of sit there thinking, yeah, you're left out of the conversation. And culturally, that has an impact on you as a whole. When you're looking at your place in a society, it really does have that impact on you. So extremely excited about African ancestry. And on your site, you say ancestral specificity. And so is that what you mean by that versus ancestral markups? Yes. So exactly versus ancestral makeup. So we're telling you that the woman that you share mitochondrial DNA with was in this present day country and was a member of this ethnic group or tribe. We're not going to say you're some percentage this and some percentage that, because honestly, as my personal experience, it doesn't matter how much European ancestry you have. Your neighborhood's still going to get gentrified at a higher interest rate when you go for a loan because you're Black. They're not going to say, oh, well, you have 20 European ancestry, so we're going to treat you differently. Well, that's something that we certainly know. So I want to talk about some of the terminology that you're using for anyone who is considering it and may not have the knowledge when you're talking about paternal and mitochondrial. What do you mean? 
So we each inherit 50% of our DNA from our mother and 50% from our father. And so, for example, if your mother's yellow and your father's blue, then you're going to be green. But imagine that there's a little yellow dot, a little bit of DNA that you inherit from your mother that doesn't mix with anything you got from your father. That's what's known as mitochondrial DNA. It's maternally inherited. So you got it from your mother and it didn't change from what she got from her mother and she got from her mother and her mother for generations. That one little bit of mitochondrial DNA never changes. If I can take your mitochondrial DNA, some portion of it, and compare it to mitochondrial DNA from all over the world, when I find a match... You have to share ancestry maternally with that person. So that's what I mean by maternal ancestry and mitochondrial DNA. For the paternal line, that's father to father to father to father. And that uses the Y chromosome. So we're all green. We have a little yellow dot from our mother. And then men have a little blue dot, a little bit of DNA from their father, the Y chromosome, that never mixes with any of the rest of the DNA, and it doesn't change. So a man can trace his father's 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 line using the Y chromosome. Yeah, it's all fascinating to me, and and I'm so grateful for this technology. And those of you who sought out to discover it and explore it even further so that we can have these answers, because again, we talk about our heritage and our culture, and I'm in the travel industry, and so One of my aesthetics is certainly to connect with cultures. I think knowing who you are and who your ancestors are really helps you in that process. And then, you know, being able to, once you identify it, be able to set out on that journey to further discover who you are and who your ancestors are in visiting these places. Have you discovered, I know the answer to this question, but I'm just asking it for the sake of the interview, but your ancestral country of origin. I have. And I've never taken an African ancestry test, if you can believe that, because only one person on the lineage has to take it and everyone shares in the results. So my mother took it and I was able to find out my mother's 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 ancestry is found among the Fulani people living in Nigeria today. And then because I needed a man to do my paternal line. My father took our paternal test and I learned that my father's 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 paternal ancestry is shared by the Hausa people living in Nigeria today. And so it has definitely been enlightening to me as I've had to learn about these groups to share with other people. I've been able to learn more about my family particularly on my father's side. People always joke that the Hausa are in the northern part of Nigeria and they're the ones who are changing the money. Mm. (laughs) Your money changed, the Hausa got you, right? And so my entire page family is full of entrepreneurs. All of my uncles and aunts, including my father, are entrepreneurs. Their parents were entrepreneurs. And so that really hit home for me when I started to learn more about the house. I haven't been to Nigeria, though, yet, unfortunately. I'm hoping to get there next year. Yeah, I think we will all be amazed when we find that inherited traits that we have aren't always about being in that person's presence, but it really is something 
that's part of your DNA that gets passed down to you, no matter how far back you go with that. Now, when DNA testing and this first came out many years ago and before African Ancestry, as I said, I did get one for myself. And I found that when I got the results, I couldn't understand them. They were so difficult to read. And I really couldn't make heads or tails of it, except to say a percentage of this, a percentage of that. And that's where it left me. So how easy are your results to read and understand and follow? They're very easy. We are fortunate to be the pioneers. So when we started in 2003, there were only two other companies in the industry and they weren't the two that are here now. Mm -hmm. So we, from the very beginning, made it a point to make our results as simple as possible because we want people to understand. You know, we don't want the result to present a barrier. So we're very simple. You share maternal genetic ancestry with the Pele people living in Liberia. That's what we told Oprah Winfrey. Or you share maternal genetic ancestry with the Tikar people living in Cameroon today. That's what we told Cheryl Lee Ralph, who just won the Emmy, right? <laughs> and believe it or not, the Tikar are the artists and the artisans of the culture. So it's very simple. <laughs> you share ancestry with these people in this country today. Well, I'm looking forward to taking my African ancestry. I know that my father has, my mother has not. So, you know, as you said, if you have someone from your family, everyone doesn't need to because you're going to have the same results. But my father has, and his had Sudanese, which we found very interesting because we weren't really thinking that area. (laughs) So we were really surprised when we learned that. That's a very old lineage. That's what that means. It's a very old lineage because human populations began in East Africa. And so we know historically that populations migrated from East Africa into West Africa. So when we find a Sudanese lineage, that means you share ancestry with people living in Sudan today. But that's a very old lineage, Hmm. which is incredible. We don't find that very often. We were very shocked because we really thought that it would be more on West Coast of Africa, but finding that out was very interesting. And then there was also some Northern African as well. The specific country right now escapes me, but there was also some Northern African markers as well. So very interesting, but I want to do the mitochondrial with African ancestry. And I've been to several African countries. And so I want to see if I've already visited one of the places. I have not been to Sudan, but I want to see if I visited maybe one of the countries from my mitochondrial side, or if it's a place that I have to add to my list and do some heritage travel. So really looking forward to that. So anyone who's considering doing it, what kind of information do we need to get them as far as what they're going to need to do that? And of course, your website so that they can find out more information. It's so simple. You just go to our website, which is AfricanAncestry.com, and you can make the decision whether you want to trace your maternal lineage or your paternal lineage. You order a test kit. And from there, it's very simple. You swab the inside of your cheeks. One of the things that makes us different than the other companies, which I didn't mention earlier, is that we're the only company that does not sell or share our customers' DNA. So when you send your swabs into our lab, there's no personally identifying information. They only know you as a barcode. And then once 
They send us the data that we need to do the analysis. The DNA is destroyed. And so that's another way that we are making a difference in our community by handling our genetic information with respect and integrity. And then you wait about eight weeks or so, and you'll have your results. I'm a little stuck on selling your information. Oh, my goodness. Uh, I know. I hit you with that in the middle. I'm sorry. (laughs) Well, that's horrible because I don't think that anybody knows that going in. And so that's a huge point and huge difference because I can bet you it's nothing that someone is signing up for or thinking that's happening when they sign up for it. So thank you for pointing that out. (laughs) Yeah, they're not reading the fine print. You got to read those terms and the conditions that are just scrolling to the bottom and hit accept like we all do. But that's why there's such a price difference between our tests and other tests. The other tests are very, very inexpensive because they're monetizing your DNA on the back end. Wow. We don't monetize your DNA on the back end. Oh, it's disturbing. But thank you so much for (laughs) sharing that information. I don't know whether I should apologize or. (laughs) (laughs) No, thank you for sharing that information. So again, Dr. Page, thank you so much for joining me today, because I think it's such a window into someone's heritage and ancestry and just being able to stake your claim in the world, really. That's the way I see it. I agree. And I thank you for having us on and for knowing about African ancestry. It's certainly an honor. You are well-traveled and a cultural influencer. And so I appreciate that you've included us in the conversation. Absolutely. So again, AfricanAncestry.com. And you're on your way to a cultural and heritage journey. And I tell you what, if you do it, let us know. I would love to have any of you on to talk about your experience and to talk about your journey and to see where you take it and go from there. So again, Dr. Page, thank you so much for joining me today. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well-informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Welcome back to the Traveling Culturati. I'm Javon Harley, your host and travel pro. The website, TravelingCulturati.com. Make sure you visit us and follow us on social media and join that travel club. We go some fantastic places. Culture is forever changing and reflecting what's happening in the society and with its people. It can be born of the arts, food, music, and sometimes politics and strife. This is the Culture Report. And I have the wonderful opportunity to speak with Kiana Johnson, author of Underrated Every Light Needs Darkness. And she's also an overseas professional basketball player. Hello, Kiana, and welcome to Traveling Culturati. Hey, Javon. Thanks for having me. Where did you grow up, Kiana? Uh, I grew up in Chicago, Chicago, Illinois, on the north side in a neighborhood called Uptown. What was it like where you grew up and how did it change your perspective? Where I grew up, there was poverty and then there was people who were well off. So the elementary school that I went to, Brenneman Elementary School, it continued a little south of that. I would run into mansions, but where I stayed north of my elementary school, there were a few high rises and even a little further north were more high rises and just people of all different 
cultures who stayed in those high rises. And most people were on Section 8 on welfare. So I got to see kind of both ends of the world, you know, people who were kind of well off and then people who didn't have much. But I like to say that I felt rich growing up. You know, I was rich in family, rich in love, like rich in all of the intangibles. I didn't realize that materialistically or financially, I didn't have as much as others until I went to high school. How did it change your perspective as you grew older and where you live and then growing up? Well, it was a reality check for me. So I have five brothers and one sister and my two older brothers. We were really close in age. We're all like a year apart. So we were connected at the hip and whatever they did, I did as well. So when I started to play basketball, it gave me opportunities that they didn't have. So we went to different schools in high school. They went to Amundsen, which is up north, and I went to Whitney Young. And going to Whitney Young, that's what changed my perspective more than anything, because that's also a a diverse school with every race imaginable. So I I had to really adjust because I was coming from what most would call the hood, where I, I was used to seeing fights or just poverty, seeing homeless people, seeing people who use drugs. I was used to that. So going to Whitney Young, that was the first thing that kind of opened my mind to there's life outside of poverty. And at the time, I didn't know that poverty really existed until I went to Whitney Young because I got to see people who had material things. I got to see the bourgeois, if you will, and just people who acted kind of uppity because they had more I got to see it all. You know, there were some down to earth people as well. There were people who had a lot and were very down to earth and very relatable. So I think it it just changed my perspective in a sense of no longer being in a box and just thinking that the world was my neighborhood. So when did you start playing basketball? Was it before high school? Yes, I started playing basketball around seven or eight years old. And it started off with me following up behind my brothers. Uh, they played football. I tried to play football. They played baseball. I tried to play baseball. And then they played basketball. And it didn't matter from that point forward what other sport they played because basketball was just something that I loved and truly enjoyed. And I found my passion young, which I think helped me just navigate through life and afforded me the opportunities that I have now. When did you realize, I'm good at basketball? This is going to be kind of interesting. I didn't realize I was really good at basketball until my last year of college. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's pretty late, but you persevered anyway. You said, okay, I yeah. I love playing it, so I'm going to continue playing it until that realization. Yeah. Yeah. Where did you go to college? I started off at Michigan State. I uh, did three years there, and then I finished at a HBCU, Virginia Union University in Richmond, Virginia. And how was your basketball career in the United States? It was pretty successful, not as successful as I would have wanted it to be, but I still received notoriety on a national level. I think I was in high school, maybe ranked like top 60 players. I was able to get a scholarship to go to Michigan State. I came in, started my freshman year. I made the Big Ten all-freshman team. Sophomore year, I was Big Ten honorable mention. And then my junior year, I kind of was in and out of trouble, which led me to transfer for my last year. And that's when I attended Virginia Union. And there is when I had a, a breakout year. I just had a family environment. And I think that helped me to be able to tune in to the greatness that I had 
within me as far as basketball goes, just being around a team that felt like family and having a coach that actually pushed me as far as I could go. Even when I didn't believe in myself or believe something was possible, she pushed me into seeing a vision that she saw for me that I didn't have for myself. So I ended up receiving a Division II Player of the Year award. I was CIAA Conference Player of the Year, All-Tournament and Tournament MVP. And the single season, I think I scored 905 points. That's the most in a single season at Virginia Union have the most assists, the most steals in the season. I just accomplished a lot there just because of the environment and the atmosphere. It was very family-oriented. So I felt like I was playing for more than myself. And instead of playing just for my teammates, I was playing with them as well, which made it just that much better. You mentioned you had a bit of a hiccup. You got into a little bit of trouble. How long was that period? And do you mind sharing what that was? So it really started my sophomore year. At Michigan State, I got suspended for nine games for NCAA violation. And the violation was basically staying in the locker room. And I was unaware that that was a violation. I just figured we had some nice plush couches, four different TVs, three different game systems, laundry. (laughs) Like I was just like, okay, well, I could just stay here and and work out. You were just chilling. Yeah. For sure. And it was very comfortable. So it was like, all right, like it, it made sense to me. But that was against the rules. It was considered an extra benefit, which I didn't understand because I'm a player on the team and I'm utilizing the locker room. And I would go to the gym and get up shots at like one, two, three in the morning if I can't sleep or if I'm just up. Like I didn't have anything to do. It was only the summertime. So it's just like, all right, well, classes might be over at the time and I'm just there. So. I didn't really understand that. And so later in the season, it came and they told me I was suspended for nine games and I had to pay some money back. So I was like, all right, cool. I sat down for those nine games, came back, had a good sophomore year. And then my junior year, I got in trouble with the team basically because of some things that I didn't like. I didn't feel like I had people that had my back. I think it was 16 people on the team at the time. And I felt like maybe five of the girls genuinely had my back. And out of those five, two of them didn't play. You know, one was a walk-on and another one, she ended up transferring or having a transfer because she had some injuries and they released her. And then the other three were just people who I were connected with from my freshman year. So I knew that I could trust them and just count on them. But then I ended up getting pericarditis, which is inflammation around the lining of my heart. And when only five people checked on me, it bothered me because it was like, okay, well, this isn't an ankle injury or a knee injury. This is my heart. I could easily pass away and nobody is coming to my apartment to check on me to see how I'm doing. And at the time I was suspended. I think I was suspended because of some tweets. The tweets were like, from a business standpoint, I can understand the perspective of the coach. It was just about not being voted as a captain but they still wanted me to act like one and people would come to me and, oh, can you say this to the coach? And it's just like, no, like <laughs> I'm not your captain. Have your captain have that conversation with the coach. Mm-hmm. And the reason people chose not to have me as a captain was because I didn't go to all of the optional 
summer workouts. I would stay home in Chicago for a weekend, but I never missed my classes or anything of that nature. Anything that was mandatory, I was there for it. You pushed through and that led to you furthering your basketball career. So when did it take you internationally? I finished school in 2016 and I started my professional career the fall of 2016. I started off in Finland, at Forza, Finland, which is kind of north of Helsinki, which is the capital of Finland. And where are you playing now? I'm currently playing in Reykjavik, Iceland for a club called Valor. So how long have you been in Iceland? This is my fourth year in Iceland. I love the people. I love the culture. I love the team that I play for and my teammates as well. I think that we all mesh really well. This is kind of like my second home when I think of countries. So yeah, I really enjoy being here. So tell us about the inspiration behind the book. Well, I've always wanted to write a book since I was a kid. Like I remember sitting at my desk in my room trying to handwrite a book. I was maybe nine or 10 years old. I'm an avid reader. So even as a kid, I used to read a lot like Babysitter's Clubs, The Goosebumps, Series of Unfortunate Events, The Arthur Books, Nancy Drew. Like I just was a reader. So I've always enjoyed reading, which led me to want to write my own book. And I had the time and I was going through a healing process. And originally, I only wanted the book to be about my basketball career. And I sent a rough copy to my mentor and she was like, no, what is this? (laughs) You have to make it more personal. And I was just like, okay, like, what do you mean by making it more personal? She was like, tell your story. And so it actually took a little bit longer because I finished the book by 2017, like just with the basketball stuff. And I had to go back in and actually write about my life. So from age five up until 2020 when COVID hit is what I wrote about. And it was hard because old traumas were resurfacing. Mm -hmm. And so it was therapeutic at the same time. As difficult as it was, it was very therapeutic. So writing a book allowed me to heal some of my past traumas. And I had to work through those things while being overseas and playing basketball. So I won't say it was easy, but it was worth it. Underrated, Every Light Needs Darkness. How Mm -hmm. can one get a copy of the book? You can go to kianajohnson.me and you'll be able to purchase it. They're also on Amazon's website. Great. Well, Kiana, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you and much success with your continued basketball career. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Well, that's it for the show today. Wherever you go, go with all your heart. Confucius. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit travelingculturati.com for more information. Ladies and gentlemen,